0: In this episode, we speak with Brian Mistel, co-founder and CEO of INRIX, the global leader in connected car services and mobility analytics. The company is at the forefront of connecting cars to smarter cities in more than 60 countries around the world. Founded in 2004, INRIX pioneered the practice of managing traffic by analyzing data not just from road sensors, but also from vehicles. Prior to INRIX, Brian was an executive at Microsoft he built Home Advisor into the number one ranked business-to-business and business-to-consumer company in both the online mortgage and real estate industries. The company was a joint venture between Microsoft and five leading mortgage banks. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you.
1: Well, great, thank you for having me.
0: So Brian, you co-founded a really interesting company, Enrix. It is fairly well known in the data and analytics space related to vehicles and traffic. Can you tell us a little bit more about the primary solutions you offer and the customers you serve?
1: Well, sure. Uh, We started the business about 18 years ago, really, as you said, focused on uh, providing global traffic information and really pioneered this idea of using GPS signals to create traffic data. Our initial customers were in the automotive space, but our business has completely transformed over the last five, six years. Uh, And now the majority of our business is selling to public sector agencies and municipalities, as well as enterprise customers. So today, instead of selling data, we're really selling an integrated suite of software applications designed for transportation use cases called InterX IQ, And that's really the core focus of the company right now.
0: Excellent. And can you give us a sense of the scale of the business? And you can use whichever metrics you're most comfortable with.
1: Sure, we're about 350 people around the world. We do provide services in about 140 countries, and the business is profitable.
0: Excellent. What's interesting is I actually had a look at your business several years ago. It was presented to me. I took a look at it from like kind of an investor's perspective. You have a series of investors that have been backing the company. Tell us about them and kind of how they were able to add value to your business beyond simply financial capital.
1: Yeah, sure. So we had three early VCs, Silicon Valley VCs, Venrock and August Capital were our first two investors, and then Bain Capital came in on our B, and then our C was done for the three of them. So three early venture capitalists, they've been very great to work with. Several of them have been on the board for quite a while, and they helped us obviously get the company off the ground, recruit some talent, and provide value. But we've had a couple of acquisitions that we've done that have been funded by later rounds. So we brought in Intel Capital, of course, SE, which is the the family holding fund that controls Volkswagen Group, as well as Kleiner Perkins, who came in on a later round to help us fund an acquisition. So we have our early investors that got the company off the ground and the later investors, which helped us do a series of three acquisitions to help expand the business.
0: Now, you have a super interesting background in that you worked for Microsoft prior to co-founding RICs. and you had somewhat of an, I guess, entrepreneurial journey there where you helped start or build businesses. Tell us about that and maybe how that led into what you do today.
1: Well, sure. So I joined Microsoft in 1995, about three months before Bill Gates wrote his very famous go-to-the-internet memo. And you know, I was in the internet group. So we started thinking about where the internet was gonna go. And I, I wrote the business plan and started what became Microsoft Investor, which is now Money Central, which is basically Microsoft's online personal finance services. And then from there, I helped start and then ran a business in the real estate and mortgage space called Home Advisor that we then sold off. And then from there, I did our mobile services group, building mobile applications for mobile phones way back in 2000 before there was an iPhone or anything like that. Microsoft had its own smartphone and we were focused on that. But then my last role was general manager of the automotive group. So uh, taking the background I had around starting businesses, around providing mobile services, and we started thinking about the car as just a mobile computing platform that you could provide services for. So... That really is the genesis of what led me and my co-founder, who was also in the automotive group, to leave Microsoft and think about the connected car and how you could mine data from that and what services you could deliver to it.
0: Now, the connected car and this kind of idea of all the vehicles now, EV or otherwise, or hybrid vehicles, so much has happened in the last two decades. And how has that impacted the way your company has evolved?
1: Well, sure. Just to put it in perspective, when we started uh, collecting traffic uh, information using GPS signals, literally the state of the art was flying traffic helicopters and looking out the window. That's what most news stations and what most folks were doing. And we obviously came up with a a different model that was much less expensive. But the whole market has changed. When we started, there was no such thing as as a Tesla or an electric vehicle of any scale. There was no such thing as an iPhone when we started the business. So a lot has changed in terms of the overall market. Probably the the biggest change I would say has been around what's now called big data. That word didn't exist in 2004 when we started the company. But if you think about really what Enrix does, we're aggregating data from 650 real-time sources you know, basically crunching through that in real time, more than 50 petabytes of information, 33 billion data points a day. And then we basically provide in real time our services that provide whether traffic data or parking information or commute patterns, trip patterns, volume, emergency response information. All these services are built on this data lake, which really didn't exist as a concept 20 years ago, whereas now you have AWS and Azure and a lot of tools around machine learning and AI that you can use to help improve the quality of what we're doing. So we've taken advantage of that and that's really helped the business.
0: Have you seen competitors move into this space and so you've had to react to what they were doing, the solutions they were providing?
1: So We certainly saw competitors come into the automotive space. Uh, when we started, there was basically a blue ocean. We signed deals with folks like BMW, and Ford, and Volvo, and Toyota, and Tesla, and a broad variety of others. But that business started to get a little bit crowded as other people came into the market, specifically big map providers, Navtech now called Here, a company called TomTom, which acquired Atlas. And they were basically selling digital maps and they you know basically started throwing in traffic data with digital maps and the price points declined precipitously in the automotive space. At the same time, we recognized the automotive was going to become less attractive over time because of CarPlay and Android Auto. The car companies just were not going to invest in the dashboard software user experience, you know, if Google and Apple were gonna be there and, and controlling a large part of that real estate. So we made a very conscious decision about six years ago, six, seven years ago, to do a couple acquisitions, pivot out of automotive to the other spaces, which were public sector and enterprise. And that's going quite well. Like you said, right now automotive is less than a quarter of our business. The public sector and enterprise businesses—the the vast lion's share. Uh, there's far more customers, and it's much more of a blue ocean. So we did have to change the strategy a bit, but all in all, it worked out for the better.
0: And in terms of continuing to scale and growth ahead, what are the most compelling value drivers in the public sector and enterprise spaces?
1: The big focus for us right now is really creating software solutions that couldn't exist before. And I'll just give you two examples. The first is traffic signal timing. If you think about a city, most cities will will hire a consultant, they'll put tubes across the road, they'll count cars. And then every year or so, they'll get around to kind of retiming and optimizing traffic signals. Well, using our data coming from mobile phones and cars and trucks and a broad variety of other devices, We can do that instantaneously. So we're selling a software tool now, a module that cities can just log into, press a button and see the performance of all their signals and how to optimize them. So that's just one example. Another example, back in August, we announced a product with General Motors called Safety View, which takes basically all data from GM vehicles, things like speeding, hard braking, airbag deployments, combines that with data around crashes and accidents and deaths that we aggregate. And we've provided now a tool to help cities identify where dangerous areas on the road are and what they can do about it, what's causing the accidents, what's causing fatalities, and help reduce the number of fatalities on the road. So we're kind of excited about the power of taking the data that we've aggregated and spent 20 years creating and then integrating that with dynamic software to really help solve these new use cases that you couldn't have done even five years ago.
0: Now, I'm curious about the transition. I know this is dating back decades ago, but you went from a kind of entrepreneur to an entrepreneur. What was the most challenging aspect to essentially building a company on your own?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, I've thought a lot about that question. At Microsoft, I, I did have the opportunity to build uh, four businesses basically from scratch. But you find what you know when you're inside of Microsoft. You spend about 80% of your time managing up and managing across, right? You're you're internally focused, selling ideas, trying to get funding, trying to get resources for your team, and then working with other teams across the company. So 80% of my time was really spent internal, and 20% was spent external, focusing on customers. I would say, you know, being an entrepreneur of a startup uh, in the VC world, it's just the opposite. I spent, in the early years, 80% of my time talking to customers, talking to partners, talking to investors outside of the company. And you really had to recruit a very good team, you know, a CTO and a CMO and a head of sales that could manage the business so that, as a CEO, I could focus on raising money, bringing in customers, and helping grow the business. So I'd say that's the biggest difference between the two.
0: And was there some key pieces of advice that you got along the way that, when you think back at it, you think, oh, that was actually one of the most valuable insights I could have been given?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. We do a class called InterX 101, which we put all our new employees through. And I share one nugget that I got at business school, actually. Uh, A professor of mine named Carl Sloan out at uh, Harvard Business School made this comment. I wrote it down in class and it seemed profound, but it really has been the secret, I think, to really all of business and success. And that is, He said, you know, in business, you only have two assets, your network and your reputation. And you always have to focus on building the former and protecting the latter. And it turns out that's very profound. Your network, whether it's with investors, whether it's with partners, whether it's with customers, Everyone talks to everyone, especially in the day of LinkedIn and references and easy kind of connection. So, your network really matters, but your reputation matters as well. You have to treat people with respect, with integrity. You have to be fair in your dealings with them. So, the more people turn into jerks these days, everybody else knows it. They know it quickly, and you start losing business opportunities and you don't know why. But we really built our business on trying to be good folks, straightforward, honest. And I think that's really helped the business.
0: And now, on the other side to it, as you've grown the business and you've been an entrepreneur now for nearly a couple of decades. Was there an insight that you kind of developed on your own that you know you think is fairly profound and, and has helped you in the latter years or the most recent years of building the business?
1: Well, I wouldn't say it's that profound. It's just that I think as a CEO... There's a million issues a day, whether it's in the early years getting funding, whether it's somebody who leaves the company to go somewhere else. You can literally get stressed out in this job. And every day is another opportunity to get stressed out. And, and really what I realized during the, the course of our early years is this is a marathon, not a sprint. Right. I mean, there are serial entrepreneurs who built a company over two years. They flip it and they go do something else. But I realize that's not me. I like the marathon. I like building for the long term. So, you know, when we think about NREX, all the decisions we make are really not focused on short term. It's really focused on where do we think the market's going to be two, three, four years from now and not to get stressed out about things that happen, whether it's somebody leaving or maybe a customer that you lost or something like that, because at the end of the day, you're playing a long game. It's for the long haul and you really want to focus on building that business that can last.
0: A couple of questions before we head into the final segment of this conversation. One is about people. Can you tell us a little bit about your leadership style and how you're able to motivate your 300 plus people?
1: Yeah. So I think Jim Collins wrote his famous book on good to great. And the most profound thing out of that was his comment that you need to get the right people on the bus and then make sure they're headed in the right direction. And that really is the job, I think, of the CEO. And that is make sure you got the right people. But in RICS, we have this thing called the airplane test, where you know, if I don't want to sit next to a, a potential recruit on an airplane for four hours, I don't hire them because at some point I will sit next to him on an airplane for four hours. So we really have focused very heavily on making sure that folks genuinely like coming into work. Because at the end of the day, if there's a jerk in your group, you don't want to come in. You have this anxiety, you'd rather stay at home. And it just you can't build loyalty. Whereas if people come in and their friends are here and they love working here they're going to be more productive, they'll work longer, and they'll be more loyal. So I would say making sure you've got the right people on the bus, and then making sure it's headed in the right direction, which means having a good strategy, people know what the strategy is, and then get out of the way. Because if you got the right people on the bus, and they know where they're going, they'll do a better job heading in the right direction than you. So your job is not to micromanage, it's just to make sure everyone's headed in the same direction and working well together.
0: Okay, now capital Do you expect to go back to the capital markets, most likely private? But are you anticipating bringing in growth capital?
1: I think this is public information. We went through a SPAC process last year. So we. Basically, we're in the process of going public through a SPAC process and raising capital that way. Obviously, the market changed quite a bit during the process, and we kind of abandoned that. We don't need to raise capital per se to fund the business. Like I said, we tend to run right around break even and take all the growth and put it back into the company. But at the same time, I have three early VCs who have been in for a long time. So we are always on the lookout for new partners, new investors who can come in and either provide some growth capital, because there's always new things we can invest in and, and acquisitions we can do. But we're also looking for opportunities to bring liquidity to our early investors. So through that secondary transactions or private equity investments and things like that, we're always looking at potential opportunities.
0: Great. At the end of the conversation, I always ask these two questions to guests. One is, can you tell us about a book that you've read that maybe has had an impact on you in some form or another?
1: So Peter Thiel wrote a book, I think it was called Zero to One, which is basically the Bible of getting a startup off the ground and kind of his experiences. So I thought Peter Thiel did a very good job with that book. The other one we read recently, and I made my entire leadership team read it, uh, it was a book called Amp It Up, and I think it was Frank Schlott, something like that, that wrote the book. Uh, But it's really about how you build urgency into the culture, how do you basically get folks moving faster? And we found that a very useful book, because I think with COVID, and people working at home, things started to slow down and for us at least we're always in a race we're always trying to outrun our competitors so uh, that book i think really helped in terms of giving us insights on how to speed up the culture
0: excellent last question who is the person you admire most
1: that is a great question i don't think there's one answer to that i think in the business world the people i admire the most are the folks like Bill Gates, Michael Dell, Larry Ellison, folks who started a company from scratch and then built it into a multi-billion dollar company. So those have always sort of been my folks I've appreciated in terms of their commitment to the business and their ability to grow it. So I'd, I'd probably put in the business world, those would be the top three. Obviously, in my personal life, you know, there's other folks like my, my dad who've been a great influence on me. But yeah, certainly the entrepreneurs that played the long game, billion dollar businesses, to me, those are my inspiration. Excellent.
0: Well, Brian, thank you again so much for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful.
1: Well, great. Thank you for having me again. Appreciate it, RJ.